Tanner, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Tonight's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. I would love for you to take out your copy of God's Word and follow along, or... um, I think it will be up on the screen. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and y'all say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Man, this is just the Jenkins family hour right here. So y'all were able to see a little bit from our four, almost five-year-old Thomas Kara and Caleb were eating dinner and got ice cream and came over to the house. We lived just right there. And uh, we were talking a little bit about the service tonight. And Kara said, Thomas, I have $2. If you could, if they're yours if you can tell me the story of Adam and Eve. She whipped out her phone and that joker's saving for a Lego set. So he's like, yep, let's go. I'll tell you the story of Adam and Eve <laughs> right now. So it's a fun time. Y'all, it's one of those things for us as we're beginning this new series, Coloring Sheets. What we're going to be doing is over the next four weeks, we're going to be going through and we're going to be looking at some of the stories, maybe that you haven't considered in tremendous detail since you were in Sunday school growing up and you did the coloring sheets and you were eating the goldfish and had the little juice cups, right? And maybe sometimes when we go through these stories, when we get to them in scripture, we kind of gloss over them. We kind of just skip over a little bit, assuming, oh yeah, we've got everything all figured out, been there, done that, heard this before. But over these next four weeks, we're going to be considering some of these stories together. And as we do, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to see new things, not that are foreign, that we are putting onto the text, but that we will see things rise out of the pages of Scripture that will be able to transform our very lives. And so as we come together tonight, we're going to be looking at the origin story of all origin stories. I love origin stories, right? You know, it's one of those things you get the movies, you get the comic books, especially with the prevalence of Marvel and everything like that right now. You know, you get the big, I love the big Avengers pulling everybody together, but then you get the single emphasis on the particular heroes and you get the origin story and it helps you to be able to know more about, appreciate more about and see how they might be acting later on when you are familiar with the origin story. And the thing about this origin story, it's not just for a distant hero, it's whether real or fictitious, it's not for something that's far removed from us, but this is the origin story for all of us here tonight. And what I want us to do is to be, when we're in Genesis 1 through 3 tonight, not for us just to think about, okay, this was something for a long time ago, a faraway place for someone else. Now, I want you all to see, if you are in Christ, that this is your family history. You listen to stories differently when they're about your family, don't you? So Thomas, who y'all have already met, 
He's about to be five, and he is growing more and more curious, and he is wanting to hear more and more about mama and dada's lives, right? He has questions and trying to make connections with our family. Becca, she's the third of four siblings, and they have a host of niece and nephews, right? And so trying to piece together all of this, but you listen differently. Like if somebody else is talking, going on about their family, yeah, that's cool, fine, good, dandy, let's get back to talking about me. But then when we hear a story that has to do with our family history, our ears perk up a little bit. And for us in Christ, I want you to hear these not as distant stories or things that are just for the coloring sheets, but I want you to hear these stories as if they are a part of your family history. And so as we come together tonight, we are going to learn about these four things, God, man, and sin, and how we're together again. God, man, and sin, and how we're together again. What we're going to learn about God is that God, he's the creator. What we're going to learn about man is that we are made in his image sin, that that image that we have has been defaced, but it's not utterly destroyed. And then how we're together again through the sin and death slaying life of Jesus Christ. So let's consider first God. He is our creator. So look at me at Genesis 1, 24 to 25. It'll be up on the screen so you can follow along in your copy of God's word. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was very good. So we see in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void. And what we see in the six days of creation is God is bringing form and fullness in creating this world. And as he is bringing form and fullness in creating this world, there's a poetic and almost rhythmic flow to the creation account. If, I don't know when's the last time that you went through, maybe when you were starting the read through the Bible in a year plan this past January, but when you go through Genesis chapter 1 and you look at the almost poetic structure of what's happening, We're over and over, let us make, and it was so, and it was good. That it's almost poetry. And it's really interesting when you go through, and if you're reading the Chronicles of Narnia, any Lewis nerds up in here, some folks that love the Chronicles of Narnia, going through the way that Lewis tries to capture this is that creation is sung into existence. And that's how he's trying to capture artistically a little bit of what we see here in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation account. And then in this day that we're reading about the livestock, about the creeping things, the beasts of the earth, all of them were made according to their kinds, according to their kinds, according to its kind. But then we see the significance right here. God, his might is such that he speaks and worlds appear. He speaks and he says, let there be and land materializes and seas are suddenly bordered off. That he speaks and verdant plants and towering trees come alive. Kingfishers and barracudas go through the air and through the sea. The ant and the blue whale, the plankton and the elliptical orbit of planets. That we are seeing that this God He is a powerful God. He's a creator God and he's a God not to be trifled with. That this God 
he creates. And this creation, it has a given quality to it. Creation did not make itself, but God made it. And thus, creation answers to God. And when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that word for creates right there, there are a lot of words for create, but this one is only used with reference to God. God is the only one who creates out of nothing. That we now, living here, we do have creativity, some more than others, right? That we go through and we are able to create in a sense, but we are only recreating, using things that we already possess, whether it be paint, whether it be words, whether it be musical notes, that we are recreating after the one who has himself created and alone creates and we now are able to recreate because he moves we're going to see here in chapter 1 verse 26 and 28 if you'll follow along man man and this is a shorthand inclusive right here men and women together mankind we are made in his image we are made in his image we see this in verse 26 through 28 that Becca has already so wonderfully read for us. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And did you notice it's different right here? Before it said, let the earth bring forth, let there be, let there be. But now there is a personal touch that's going on when God gets to the crown jewel of his creation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man, just piling it up together, all right there. How can I say the same thing in different ways, one right after another? Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We have right here one of the fundamental building blocks of everything that we know to be true. And that is, it is that human beings, men and women, every person that you have ever met, every single person in this room tonight, everyone is made in the image of God. You might have heard it referred to before as the Imago Dei, you know, in the Latin, right? That you are looking at that, but it's one of, we are made in the image of God. But what does that mean that we were created in the image of God? Well, a few things that we're able to infer from this passage and then pulling from other places across scripture, we're able to see that the image of God means that we are capable of creating, creativity, worshiping, communicating, reasoning, relating, capable of love and responsible for our actions. It means that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what your record is, it doesn't matter what you've done in your life or what you've left undone, how far you've gone, everyone that you meet is created in the image of God. And therefore, this is a rock-solid, objective, and irreducible glory and significance and value and worth about every human being that has ever existed. There's a ton of significance right here. That if this is true, if every person that you meet is valuable and worthy of dignity and respect, it changes how we live. 
It changes how we interact with people in general and people specifically. It's one of the reasons this idea, this fundamental truth that people are created in the image of God, it is what has so compelled Christians through the centuries to alleviate poverty, disease, and starvation because even the poorest of the poor are created by God and in the image of God. It's the reason why Christians rescue and rehabilitate trafficked boys and girls because there is no such thing as a disposable human being because everyone is created by God and in the image of God. It's the reason why Christians fight abortion and support mothers in compassion because everyone is created by God and in the image of God. It's the reason Christians uphold the dignity of the elderly and the disabled Because everyone is created by God and in the image of God. It's the reason why Christians work on behalf of all immigrants because people of all nationalities are created by God and in the image of God. It's the reason Christians work for religious liberty because the freedom to follow one's conscience is a fundamental ability of being created by God and in the image of God. Christians work for the flourishing of marriage because it is an instrument of blessing for men and women created by God and in the image of God. And Christians work for racial unity and reconciliation because every person of every skin color is created by God and in the image of God. There has never been a human being who was not created by God and in God's image. But in each of those arenas that we just talked about, we are able to see that something is not right. And not that just something isn't right, but that something has gone horribly, terribly wrong. How? Why? Well, this is where we get to what went wrong. And this is where we talk about sin. And sin, the image of God, is defaced through the first Adam. That we're able to see this. Let's look at chapter 2 verse 8 if you'll follow along. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That when we get to chapter 2 verse 8 and we're looking at this that God he planted a garden. That this gardener right here, and he puts man that he created in the garden. He made every tree. And did you see the descriptions for it? Pleasant to the sight and good for food. And these two trees are singled out in particular. You have the tree of life and you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And people are like, oh, What did those trees look like? You know, what did those trees do? What was the property for each of those trees? And there are some things that we can infer as we're looking through the scriptures and trying to figure out what are these trees meaning. But we're able to infer about the tree of life that it had the ability to prolong life. That we see a little bit later on after man and woman fell and they were driven out of paradise. That, as Thomas said, the guys with the flashing swords, of course he remembers that. The cherubim, as they guarded the entrance to the garden, keeping men and women away from the tree of life, lest they be staying in their sin and having access to live forever. 
so that there is this tree that is capable of prolonging, of giving eternal and abundant life. And then there is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I don't know why, but like, you know, in Sunday school growing up and on the coloring sheets, right, that we look at the trees and for whatever reason, I feel like that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has like little skulls and crossbones and maybe like a little tombstone, even though nobody's died yet. You know, but it's there and it's just all of the icky things as we get close to Halloween, right? It's just bad and kind of oozing stuff. And it's like, oh, this knowledge of good and evil, stay away, Satan, you know, different things like that. But what we're able to say is we're going through and as others who have been considering and contemplating the scriptures for a long time, there's nothing in the text that says that there's anything inherently evil about this tree. There's a guy named Thomas Boston, Scottish theologian from the 16 and 1700s. And what he had to say about this is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was not forbidden because it was evil. It was evil because it was forbidden. It could have been any tree. It could have been any bush, any shrub in the garden that God had partitioned out and said, you have access to everything here in paradise i have made everything for you to enjoy everything for you to eat it looks good it tastes good it's for your enjoyment and for your nourishment but this right here not this the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he says this in chapter 2 verse 15 and 17 don't eat of this tree because the day that you eat from it you will surely die But we get to chapter 3, verse 1. We don't know how long men and women have, uh, Adam and Eve have been in the garden at this point. But we pick up in chapter 3 and there's a new character that comes in. And as we look at chapter 3 and it's the serpent. Follow along, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent, the enemy, the adversary, the accuser, the devil that we know from other parts of scripture. That the enemy comes and the first words that we hear slither past his forked tongue are getting people, God's creation, his image bearers, getting them to question God. Did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? But it's not that he just questions God. But do you notice how he twists God's word? Because God didn't say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden. Quite the contrary. He said that you can eat for everything. He's made it all. It's for you. It's for your enjoyment. It's for your nourishment. But there's just this one tree that you can't have. But we pick up in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she's correcting. She's hearkening back to God's word a little bit. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Do you notice the subtle addition that's happening right here? Adding to God's word, creating other smaller laws alongside the ones that God has given that we might not break it, heaping up restrictions. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And right here what we see is the paradigm, the pattern of the enemy's tactics. The enemy's tactics. Let's look through some of these as we see in chapter 3 verse 1. The first one is the enemy's tactics are to get us to question and twist God's 
word. I love how Thomas said it in the pre-sermon video. Don't obey God. As he's going through right here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who he was the 20th century martyr that died under Nazi occupation in Germany. And this is what he said in reflecting on this passage. This is the question that appears harmless at first, but through it, evil wins power in us. Through it, we become disobedient to God. Man is expected to be judge of God's word instead of simply hearing it and doing it. That what we have right here, the enemy's first tactic is to get us to question and twist God's word. Did God really say? But then we see secondly in verse 4, the enemy gets us to outright reject God's word. Yeah, God says in chapter 2, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the enemy says, you will surely die. It moves from questioning and twisting to outright denial and rejection. But then if that's not enough, he continues on in verse 5 and we see the third thing of the enemy's tactics. He appeals to our desires. Did you see what it said in verse 5? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's essentially saying this. God's holding out on you. God knows the second that you eat it that you're going to know, you're going to be like him. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. He doesn't want that. Just go ahead. Just take it. We see this as the essence of temptation. Disordered desire. We see it in the book of James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He writes, but each person is tempted When he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Or we see it in 1 John chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of the life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. You see, the times have changed, but the tactics haven't. We see this cropping up again and again in our day in the enemy's tactics. He's not creative, but he's persistent. Did God really say? Did God really say? No. No, that's not the way that it is. Surely that won't happen. Hey, if you reach out and you take a hold of this, it's going to give you exactly what you want. And God, he's actually holding out on you from being able to experience all that you're wanting to experience. The pleasure, the pride, the acclaim, the name. Just go ahead. Reach out and take it. And Eve, in verse 9, she begins to rationalize what she's going to do right here. The text says that she sees that the fruit is good for food. She says, I mean, it's a delight to the eyes, so check, check. God is already, I mean, there's so much else that's a delight to the eyes that's good for food. And I mean, if it's going to make me wise, I mean, God would want me to have this, right? That we start to baptize this kind of thinking, that this will actually advance us, that this will actually put us in a good place. And so what it says, when you look at the actual Hebrew, it is, So short, so compressed, 
She took, she ate, she gave. She took, she ate, she gave. And it's a device that the writer is using to be able to show that something that was so catastrophic happened so quick and seemed to have so little consequence but that would shape the rest of human history as we know it. Their eyes were opened, but it led to a spiritual blindness. That she did now know the difference. He did now know the difference between good and evil, but it wasn't because God had revealed it to him, but it was an experiential knowledge of evil firsthand. They made a trade, grabbing for the life that they thought would make them happy, only for the fruit to turn sour in their stomachs. They were created in the image of God to reflect him, to have dominion, not lording over creation, but to bring about its flourishing, to bring about its rule, to bring about order in disorder. But rather than reflecting God, they sought to replace him because of the word of the serpent. He knows that the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him. And he doesn't want anyone else to be like him. But the thing about it is, they already were. They were created in the image of God. They were listening to the lies of the enemy. Convincing them that they didn't have something that they already had. They were like God in that they represented him. In that they had his image, his imprint, his signature on their very souls and so now sin is unleashed in the world and in every human heart this is where we get the doctrine of original sin and that not just Adam and Eve but everyone successively in Adam now has sin taking up residence in the human heart but y'all the thing about sin we the enemy would love for us to make light of it. That it's something that's just easily dealt with. Something that we could not really have to dwell on. Something we just kind of disregard really quick. Um, it's one of those things that uh, we sometimes think of sin uh, like dust. Something that's light. Um, you know, I, I have this. Uh, I don't know how many of you all are into retro gaming, but this right here is what we call a Nintendo 64. Anybody familiar with the Nintendo 64? Okay, right, I put it to our lead team earlier today in a poll and group me. I was like, do y'all know what the N64 is? And the two questions were, yes, duh, of course I do. And two, no, you're old. And the no, you're old's one. So I was really kind of worried how many people were actually going to know what a Nintendo 64 is. But now, if you have ever had the pleasure of playing on the greatest of gaming machines. This one actually still functions. Thomas has two hours of video game time every sun Saturday where he gets to play Zelda in the Ocarina of Time right here. And it's one of those things that y'all might have played your games on PC, downloaded all of it's in the cloud, but maybe you did it on Blu-rays, DVDs, compact disc, whatever. But back in the day, we had cartridges, right? And there was just something so satisfying about putting this in there, popping turning the on switch and seeing that faint red glow on the front side that said, you're about to have the time of your life, right? That we, as we're going through playing, that, but if y'all remember, and if you have the experiential knowledge of playing on the N64, sometimes you flip on that on switch and what happens? Nothing, nothing, Chadwick. 
And you're like, well, what on earth? I know exactly what to do. You take this sucker out, you turn it over, lift it to your kisser, and you try to blow the dust that is accumulated off. Because that is what is preventing the image going from this wonderful cartridge up to your TV via this console. And sometimes you just need to be able to blow off. Get the dust off of the cartridge, pop it back in, turn on the switch, and you're ready to go. Sometimes, y'all, especially in our day and age, that's the way we think about sin. Something light, something inconsequential, something you don't need to let too much of it accumulate, otherwise it's going to prevent you from doing something that you want to do, but small amounts of it are okay. But rather than viewing sin as the dust that accumulates on the cartridge of our lives, and it is just on the surface and can be dealt with very quickly, It's more as if acid has begun to corrode the very cartridge itself. And no amount of removing the dust is going to be able to do what it was originally intended to do again. That the remedy is going to have to be consistent with the fault that was at play. And what we are going to see right now, that it is not something that can be dealt with lightly. But we see in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, the significance of what happened. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. People sometimes are like, I wasn't there in the garden. Why am I held responsible? A lot of times we're captive to our Western individualized understanding. But what we see is Adam is what is called our federal head. And that we all are in Adam. He is our representative of humanity. And sin is what we have done that transgresses against God's word and left undone that God's word compels us to do. Sin is both things that we do and that we leave undone. And what happens? They take, they eat, they give, their eyes are opened, and they realize that they are naked and they are ashamed. And so what is the first act that our forefather and foremother, Adam and Eve, did? It says that they hid themselves and they sewed fig leaves together. And tried to cover their nakedness and their shame. But you see the thing about it is. After they go and they're doing the blame game. God comes. He's walking in the cool of the garden. Adam and Eve are hiding. And he asks the question where are you? And this is the omniscient God of all of creation. He knows exactly where they are. When God asks questions in scripture. It's not to find out new information. But it's to draw people out of hiding he says where are you and they come and they said we were afraid because we're naked he says who told you you were naked and then there is a pronouncement of curses on the serpent on the woman on the man there's hurt and we now see here that we live in a sin sick world that no one is not touched by We sin against God and others. There is pain, there is suffering, there is sickness, and there is death. And people are like, oh, just because they ate 
from the fruit? Well, you see, it wasn't just in the act of that was God's favorite fruit and they took it. But it was in what that represented. In being created in the image of God, man and woman were created to reflect him, but rather than reflect him, they sought to replace him. It was an act of rebellion. It was an act of anarchy. It was an act to overthrow the Lord of all creation. And God comes and he meets them in their sin and in their shame. He pronounces that there's going to be so much hurt that results from this. But not just that there's hurt, but he speaks a word of hope. He speaks a word of hope right here at the very beginning. Look at this. In verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all the living. Even in the midst of the death that had been unleashed and that would now be characteristic of this world, there is still hope because what he calls her is not the mother of all of the dying, but the mother of the living. And there is so much hope that would come. We see verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He told them to lose the fig leaves that they tried to make for themselves to cover their own shame. And instead, God would have a sacrifice. And we see the first account of death here in the scriptures where God takes the animal skins and he clothes his very people to cover their shame. There is a word of hope. But not just here in the clothing, not just in Eve's name and what it means, but also in what God says in Genesis 3.15, one of the most important scriptures for us and pointing to the remedy. That I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. That there is one that is going to come from the offspring, the seed from the woman, and he, talking to the serpent, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That he will deal a death-dealing blow, crushing the skull of the serpent. And his heel will be bruised in the process. Fatal for the serpent, not ultimately fatal for the serpent crusher. And you see, sometimes people are like, man, why didn't God just give us a second chance? Why... Why didn't we get a do-over? Why didn't we get a mulligan? Why didn't we get a rewind right here? And I love the way that Tim Keller puts it, Presbyterian pastor up in New York, and this is what he says. We don't need a second chance. We need a second Adam. Because if we had the second chance, then it would have been same song, second verse. But what we needed was not another chance to be able to do it in our own strength, but we needed a second Adam to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We needed a second Adam to succeed where the first one failed. And this is how we get to the last part, how we are together again, because we were originally created, men and women, to be with God. As his image bearers. But because of sin, there is now a defacing of that image. And there is a separation That God in his holiness cannot coexist with the sin. But rather than just being eternally separated, God was going to do something about it. The remedy for how we were together again. And it is through the sin and death slaying life of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. 
that as we look at Christ, that Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. Look at Colossians 1.15. Scripture says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or look at Hebrews 1.3. That as you look, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That Jesus Christ, he is the image of God. And when we look at him in the pages of scripture with the eyes of faith, we see someone bearing the image of God that it has not been defaced by sin. But that is standing forth, reflecting the glory of God into the world around and into our hearts by faith even today. That Christ, he is the image of God. But we also see that the way we, we, we would be brought back would be through what else than trees. Because you see, really all of human history could be characterized as living between two trees. You have the tree of blasphemy in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree where humanity fell and fell hard. And then you see in the book of Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, the tree of life that makes another appearance. And what the apostle John, as he was writing this, said that they're the tree of life and from there flows the water from the river of life and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Back at our origin story and then where we're all ended up. All of history between two trees. And that at the climax of that history, the highest point, we see the Son of God himself, where else but nailed to a tree between two trees. With one person on a tree uttering blasphemies and curses. And another one on the other tree being promised that he will be that day with Jesus in paradise. That we're seeing a little bit of a hearkening back and a little bit of foreshadowing for what's to come. That Jesus Christ, we see in Acts chapter 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. In 1 Peter 2.24, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Because this is it, y'all. Because of our sin, we deserve to be on that tree where Jesus was, stripped naked, humiliated, blasphemed against, crucified, asphyxiated, suffering, and breathing his last. That's what our sin... The wages of sin, Romans would say, the wages of sin is death. That's what it pays out in separation from God. But Jesus took that so that you would not have to. And with the abundance of his life, he slayed death itself. This is the good news. This is the truth that when you give your life to it, fundamentally reshapes the way that you go through this world. The way that you view God, the way that you view yourself, and the way that you view other people around you. Your trajectory, your major, the small things going throughout your day. 
because you know where you're headed, the ultimate destination, with God again. That this is the gospel. That Christ has come to deal with your sin. Because this is the truth. You are far more sinful than you ever would believe. This is another thing Tim Keller has said. You are far more sinful than you would ever dare believe. And you are more loved than you could ever dare hope. That Christ knew what he was getting when he came and he sought his people. Taking your sin away from you. Taking it upon himself and it dying on the cross there with him. And when he was put in the grave and rose again to new life, he came out and the sin was still there. And it didn't come out with him. So that now all who would repent and believe, turning from their sin and trusting in him, you move from being in Adam to being in Christ. Because you see, this is it. Christ became sin for us. He brings us life as the new Adam. And our origin story, every single one of us, we get it by being born physically here on this earth, and that is being in Adam. But there is a new possibility. There is a new origin story that is available for you. And it's not by being born physically, but it's by being born again. It's getting out of being in Adam. And by being is what scripture says, in Christ, by faith. Renouncing, repenting, turning away from living life on your own terms and as if God is not there. And following hard after him. Because he has already come and pursued you. That this is an origin story that can be rewritten. That this is an origin story that isn't doomed to fail from the start. But rather, scripture would say Christ was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. That it is possible to have a new beginning. It is possible to have a new story. And now when we do this and we hear the words of Scripture where it says take and eat, that it's no longer that brings curses and separation from God. But now we hear it at the Lord's Supper and when we take and we eat, it doesn't bring separation but it brings intimacy. It doesn't cast us far away but it brings us close and where we have Christ himself. There's a new beginning. It can be yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we were not left on our own in shame and in hiding, but God, that you came to us and that you have made a way where we could not have made a way so that we could be with you again. God, I pray for the student, for the young adult that's here tonight. God, that does not know fellowship with you that does not know closeness with you their creator and with you their redeemer that their lives are characterized by sin separation pain and brokenness and God if they are here tonight and they want something different would they reach out with a cry of faith 
And if that's you here tonight, I want to give you some words to be able to use. Maybe you haven't talked to God in a long time. Maybe you've never before prayed. And so you would want to say something like this. God, I'm sorry. I've tried to do it on my own. I can't do it on my own. Help me. Forgive me. I don't want to do those things anymore. I want to follow Jesus. That is a prayer that he hears. That is a prayer that he honors. And Father, for those that are here tonight that are following you, but that feel that they are lapsing again into the power and the deceitfulness of sin, God, would your gospel speak a better word than the allure of that temptation? And would they not hold on to it? Would they not try to take care of it or to peacefully coexist with it? But God, would they not try to shove those desires way deep down inside, but would they bring those out in full force and would they lay them at your feet? God, would we not try to reach out and to take counterfeits, but would we hold on for the life that you have promised, the fullness, the goodness of kingdom living? Would you be our help? Would you be our strength where we have none? We pray this humbly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.